well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with me on the program today. We're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, Garland versus Cargill on today's show. You know, I, I taped yesterday's uh, Cam and Company right after the oral arguments had concluded. Um, and I wanted to talk with somebody other than myself <laughs> about the oral arguments. So uh, Cody J. Wisniewski of the Firearms Policy Coalition's Action Foundation going to be with us here in just a moment. Uh, he, too, paying close attention to Wednesday's oral arguments in the bump stock ban case. He has thoughts, many of them. In fact, uh, let's get to those thoughts right now. Take a look and a listen. Cody, thanks for joining me on the show today. It's good to see you again. Of course, Cam. Good to be back. And I, we're going to be talking about the bump stock case, but I also have to say uh, congratulations in Linton versus Bonta. This was a great decision. And I didn't realize just how extreme California's uh, prohibitions were in terms of prohibited people. It doesn't matter if you've had your record expunged, if you've had your conviction vacated in other states. Once a felon, always a felon, as far as California is concerned. Even if you're a correctional officer, even if you're a firearms instructor for decades, the state can come back and say, yoink, we're going to take your Second Amendment rights away. Well, uh, the state could. Uh, could. That. Could. That's right. <laughs> Fortunately. So thank you so much. You know, that's a huge win. It's really important. It's something that, uh, you know, FPC, FPC Action Foundation has been pushing uh, on a lot is this issue of these people who are being disenfranchised, these people who are being prohibited from ex exercising their rights uh, for, you know, nonviolent offenses or like in California, even after those offenses were, were expunged from the record or pulled off their record. So there's certainly a massive win in that space. Absolutely. Yeah. 48 years of, you know, law abiding activity from one of these individuals and still the state of California says, nope, no guns for you. So I'm glad to see that the uh, uh, judge in this case got the, got it right. Um, hopefully. Cal DOJ will not appeal this case and just take the loss. But, uh, you know, I doubt very much that that's going to happen. All right. We will, so uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and we'll see what happens with uh, 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 the cargo case as well. Like Garland versus cargo. Oral arguments heard yesterday. Um, I was listening, taking notes uh, while the oral arguments were going on. I'm sure that you were doing the same. What What was your take on uh, on the uh, well, I'll, I'll say overall? What, what, what is your take on how yesterday's oral arguments went? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, overall, I actually think that argument went pretty well. I know that a lot of gun owners are discouraged based on some of the questions that were being asked and some of the technical discussion that was happening in the courtroom. I think one of the things that I observed kind of coming out of argument uh, that was really unique in Cargill is that this case wasn't buried behind decades of legal precedent. It wasn't buried behind convoluted legal doctrines. It was a pure technical question about the function of a firearm. And so in that way, it was very accessible for everybody. It was very easy to follow along with what the court was doing and what was going on. But as a result, it was also very easy for people to follow on, along with what the court understood and what the court didn't understand and what some justices were picking up on and what some weren't. So the thing I would say is remember now that as they step away from argument, they take this case under submission. So they bring it back. They're going to go back into chambers. They're going to start writing opinions. They're going to start doing additional research in the briefs. There is an opportunity for these for the justices to re-review briefs, to re-review material, to re-look at some of the way that firearms function, uh, and to be able to dig through more of that. So 
I'm not as concerned uh, with some of the questions that were asked in the courtroom. A lot of times judges are just trying to poke and prod to determine where the bounds of an argument is. How far does this go? You know, if I rule X way, then what does that mean happens later on down the road? So overall, I actually think that argument went uh, went pretty well. And I think the justices were clearly engaged on the topic. Um, you know, there are certain ones, obviously, that are just not going to come out uh, in a position that rules in favor of of not even necessarily gun rights in this context. Right. This is just kind of pure. Uh, Administrative Procedure Act issues, but there are certainly uh, justices that are just not going to come out that way, uh, and that's fine. Uh, all that matters is that five justices find that the APA or that the uh, ATF violated its uh, its legal requirements in in promulgating this rule. Yeah, I, uh, I I heard the phrase "single function of a trigger" in my dreams last night. By the way, <laughs> that that phrase was said so often yesterday. But that is really what it comes down to, right, is is how you define or how the court is going to define that single function of the trigger. The the government contends, and I think um, Judge Jackson was probably the one who most eagerly embraced the government's argument, at least based on the questions that she had, that the single function of a trigger does not just encompass the mechanics of a trigger, but also, you know, human activity, which is strange. I mean, that's just a strange assertion. And Justice Gorsuch asked, well, how can a human function a trigger? Right. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you can swing a bat, you can throw a ball, but you can't function a trigger, um, which I think gets to the heart of this, right? Whether or not Congress, what Congress meant in the 1930s when it uh, used that description, um, as Cargill's attorney said, you know, listen, it covered both the pull of a trigger as well as automatic uh, firearms that used a push button. Um, but in no way, shape or form did it encompass, uh, you know, applying forward pressure, right, to the uh, forward part of a rifle while applying backward pressure to the uh, to the uh, stock of the rifle, um, which is what has to happen. This was something that I, you could sense the frustration in Cargill's attorneys as he was trying to explain over and over again that you can slap a bump stock on a rifle that doesn't increase the rate of fire. You have to actively, not just passively, you have to actively engage with that rifle in order to increase the rate of fire, which to me anyway, says that there's more than just the function of a trigger that's involved in an increase in the rate of fire. And even then it doesn't turn the gun into an automatic firearm as Justice Jackson repeatedly referred to bump stock rifles. Uh, that that was another frustrating part of the argument yesterday is that there was this, this hang up, it seems from the, at least the liberal wing of the court in, in terms of getting the the use of these words right as opposed to just, you know, uh, giving it new meaning. Yeah, and that's it is a huge problem. I mean, we're talking about a lot of different very technical terms and we're also talking about the terms and the definitions and the structure that Congress passed. And I think that's kind of a point that, you know, Cargill's attorney did mention, um, you know, a couple of times, of course, represented by NCLA. And they did mention a couple of times, but it's kind of this this the real point at the end of the day is, you know, Justice Jackson, if you don't like the way that the statute, you know, impacts this case, you know, that's perfectly fine. But that's the it's in the hands of Congress to amend the statute. If Congress wants to capture these things, then Congress should amend the statute to capture these things. Now, then we've got a different question, right? Then we have a Second Amendment case in question. But 
then there's no question of whether or not the ATF overstepped its statutory authority. Because here, that is what is really at issue, right? Is did the ATF go further than Congress allows it to? And I, I think the clear answer here, when you look at the terms, is yes. And it's it's not even close when you're talking about exactly like you're talking about, Cameron, the function of a trigger. And that key part is what Congress was intending to capture in this definition. If they wanted to capture rate of fire, then they would have had to address rate of fire. But really, that's all a, all a bump stock does, right, is alter, potentially alter the rate of fire of a semi-automatic firearm. It doesn't change its function in any way. And that was what that, the, the hump that it seemed like several justices just couldn't get across or couldn't quite understand. Uh, and even some of the more, you know, those justices appointed by, you know, conservative presidents, they even at times were asking questions of, well, wait a minute, what if, what if we did this? Or is the constant pressure, you know, on the forebody of the firearm, does that qualify? And what about, and, and I know a lot of people were concerned about, you know, justices that they hope are going to be deciding in favor of Cargill, asking questions that are critical. Uh, but also that's a really common practice. So I don't want people to get disheartened with that. It's really common that even justices that might agree with you ask you tough questions because they're also thinking of writing an opinion. And so they want to head off those questions in their writing, but they also want to be able to address those points that inevitably a dissent in this case, one way or another, um, will address. So there is certainly a, a lack of understanding on the, of the function of a firearm uh, on the court. I mean, that is, is pretty evident and clear. FPC filed a brief uh, laying out some of that. FPC Action Foundation filed a brief laying out the function of a firearm. In fact, at the Fifth Circuit, when this case went on bonk, uh, the Fifth Circuit opinion actually really closely tracks uh, our briefing below and actually follows some diagrams that were included in our briefing, as well as uh, a GIF, a video that showed the operation of a semi-automatic firearm. Mm -hmm. So those resources are certainly before the court. We just hope that they take the time to be able to go back and look at those uh, and consider those when they move through. And the last kind of point to that, too, is the Fifth Circuit on Bonk opinion, right, is the last opinion in this case. It's the last thing that was decided uh, in the in the case. And so that will be at the forefront of what the justices are reviewing and considering when deciding this. That Fifth Circuit on Bonk opinion walks through the function of a firearm very well. Uh, again, it borrowed heavily for our, from our brief, so I think it it does an excellent job laying <laughs> out the function. But it walks through that function really well. And so it's not like this is buried in you know a hidden amicus brief at the bottom of a pile. This is this is at the forefront of what the court will be reviewing on the papers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're right. I mean, there were some tough questions from uh, folks like Justice Thomas, um, but I, I I didn't see that as necessarily a sign that Justice Thomas was going to come down in, on the side of the government. As you say, you often will get you should get tough questions. I mean, honestly, you know, uh, justices like Elena Kagan and uh, Justice Sotomayor sort of should have had tough questions for the government. And in some cases, they've they presented uh, tough cases. In, in Bruin, for example, they had some uh, critical questions of the uh, state of New York. And of course, they still ended up <laughs> ruling. <laughs> they they ruled in New York's favor. Um, so I don't think you can read too many tea leaves into just the questions that were asked. I want to get your take on the government's contention that a non-mechanical bump stock turns a gun into a machine gun, but bump firing, um, you know, either using a belt loop or a rubber band or, or some other uh, device 
or even no device at all does not turn a gun into a machine gun. So you can still increase the rate of fire, right? Just as much as you would with a non-mechanical bump stock. And the government contends that that is probably okay, but a bump stock is not. Do I have that right? Because I was, that was one part of the argument where the government's attorney just completely lost me. You, you accurately represented their argument. Yes. Okay. Uh, I also don't understand uh, the distinction that they're trying to make. Well, let me rephrase. I understand the distinction they're trying to make. It's just meaningless. The, at one point, the government's attorney said that the difference between those two things, the difference between bump firing with a non-mechanical bump stock and bump firing with a sling or a band is that the non-mechanical bump stock makes it easier. And because it's easier, it is thus a machine gun. Now, I have read the statute. I never found the word easier in the statute. Double checked. It's not in there. Uh, but it's also just ridiculous for people who have who have fired, you know, multiple of these things, right? Like non-mechanical bump stocks aren't the most difficult to use, but it certainly takes a minute to understand and to, to figure out exactly the rate of fire and to figure out exactly the amount of pressure. But I, I've also fired and we've all fired firearms probably that have incredibly light triggers that you can just bump fire from the shoulder. There's, you know, bump firing from a belt loop is incredibly easy to do. And so it's also a lack of understanding on that part. And that's something that actually, you know, Cargill's attorneys didn't quite differentiate as much uh, as they probably could have. Uh, I think at one point he conceded that, you know, it's a lot, it's hard to, to bump fire without a non-mechanical bump stock and that you would have to be, you know, uh, I, th I think he said expert, but I don't want to misquote him, uh, which of course set the internet ablaze as everybody was posting all of their videos of them bump firing random firearms in random configurations <laughs> in random places. But, um, you know, that's, that is one distinction that, you know, they could have done better, but I think the point got across at the end of the day that this isn't, there is really no differentiation between a non-mechanical bump stock and a belt loop. Uh, in fact, in, in our brief, we even dug into the fact that if you properly, if, if the court interprets the rule or interprets the statute to cover non-mechanical bump stocks, then the statute probably also covers slings. Right, something that is a a device that's fairly easy to use that would increase the rate of fire of a semi-automatic firearm. If that's their test, then a sling could be encapsulated in that definition, and belt loops could be could be grabbed in that definition. And of course, when you're talking about machine guns, right, the conversion device is in and itself a machine gun under federal law. And so then you get into this weird scenario of if you own a sling and nothing else, do you own a machine gun? Uh, and so it gets into this really ridiculous interpretation. And so I, I think at the end of the day, even the justices that are a little bit nervous about the distinction between semi-automatic and fully automatic firearms and, and whether they're, they're concerned, there's a bit of a blurred line here. I think the other thing to remember is they're going to take a step back and they're going to go, is this an appropriate exercise of agency authority? And so even the ones that aren't willing to go as far on firearm cases are going to be highly skeptical of agency overreach in this case, especially when these items were considered to be lawful for so long. Right. And as uh, I think it was Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch uh, asked the government's attorney, all right, so even with this Fifth Circuit decision, if somebody possesses a bump stock in, in you know the Fifth Circuit's jurisdiction, could you arrest and prosecute them right now? And the government's response was, yeah, 
we can. He said, we probably won't. You know, right. There aren't that many cases, but uh, they reserved the right to go after these uh, individuals. So, you know, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of Americans whose uh, freedom, quite frankly, is implicated here. Right. It's, it's a, a choice between uh, possessing these pump stocks or risking 10 years in prison. Um, and, and, I, and I hope that you're right. You know, there, there were the comments by uh, Justice Gorsuch, I think uh, Justice Comey Barrett, who said, you know, basically, sympathetically, uh, I, I'm emotionally I'm with you. You know, I can understand we don't want uh, every yabo in the country running around with machine guns. But they, and they always had that but, uh, right? But the question is how, if you agree that bump stocks should be banned, how do you do it? Um, and as you say, this was not a Second Amendment case. I know Justice Kavanaugh brought up the Second Amendment towards the end of oral arguments. And and I've seen folks online saying it was a mistake not to make a Second Amendment argument. It was a mistake not to include a Second Amendment uh, uh, component to this lawsuit. I Now, I'm not an attorney, so I will give my non-lawyerly opinion after I ask you what you think. Um, was it a mistake to not talk about the Second Amendment? Or, or, or was it the uh, right approach to keep this as narrow as possible and make this an APA case? I think what became very evident uh, to a lot of people before that court is if you had a pure machine gun question before the Supreme Court in that courtroom, you would not have had many justices on your side. So I, whether or not you know we think something like the Hughes Amendment is constitutional, what was clear from that argument is you couldn't have gotten five votes on a constitutional issue saying that you know machine guns in and of themselves um are likely likely constitutional uh or likely cannot be banned or can't be regulated in the manner they are it just doesn't seem like the court is there yet now that's not a judgment based on again what you or i think uh that's just if you look at the courtroom and i think people can tell that i think if you listen to argument and you go through you have people like you know justice gorsuch going you know you know we're sympathetic with you on the idea that you know machine guns are highly dangerous and are are you know a problem but and then he gets into the, the more APA focused stuff. But I, so I think focusing on the APA claims in this case made sense. Um, it is by far an, it, an, an act in excess of statutory authority. Beyond that, they, of course, do not actually convert a semi-automatic firearm into a machine gun. And so if you were going to make that argument, you would almost have to make it in the alternative of you know, if these are in fact machine gun conversion devices, then the prohibition or regulation of machine gun conversion devices is thus unconstitutional. That would have to be the structure. And so you'd have to spend a fair amount of time of your briefing arguing if the government is right, we still win, which you do in some cases. We do in some cases too. Uh, but that's really hard in the current climate of the court when you're talking about machine guns specifically. You know, we talk about the Overton window a lot. Right. This idea of acceptable topics to society and, you know, common topics to society in the edges of the Overton window. I think the Overton window is shifting right now. Right. We're talking about, you know, we've talked about this before. We're talking about people getting a lot more interested in things that 10, 20, 30 years ago weren't common. Right. You know, body armor, SBRs, all of these things. I just don't think that machine guns is within that Overton window right now uh, when you're talking about courtrooms. So I think that was apparent. It's a very long answer for a very short question, so I apologize. But uh, I do think it was clear that there wasn't an appetite in the Supreme Court to have that conversation. And the APA violations here were so egregious 
that it should just be an open. It should have been since day one. It should be uh, here at the end, a really just open and shut case. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I you know, and I, uh, I agree with you uh, and I'm glad that I agree with you. Um, but <laughs> You know, and and I, I think you're right about moving the Overton window, right? And this is why we can't just put all of our Second Amendment eggs in the litigation basket or the legislative basket, right? We have to fight in the culture as well. Um, and the gun control groups, I mean, look, they're very successful at, at doing that, even <laughs> in some ridiculous cases, right? Where they'll, uh, you know, uh, let, let's get a uh, rapper to host a gun buyback in Detroit, even though he's, you know, uh, rapping about blasting people with his uh, AR-15. Um, you know, they're heavily engaged in Hollywood, right? They are, are trying to influence the culture. Um, and we need to do the same. And whether that's, you know, again, through uh major motion pictures whether it's through music or whether it's just us talking to our friends family and neighbors and taking them out to the range and letting them shoot that i think has an impact on the culture and it does help to shift that overton window towards maximum freedom and maximum recognition of our second amendment rights and you know the courts and i think even the you know the state houses are a place where it's not about compromise but i think that there is you know, progress is made incrementally. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's big bites. Sometimes it's smaller bites, but you don't get everything you want in one case or in one bill. You just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important, you know, forever the optimist for me. Uh, I think it's important for people to remember, right? We didn't lose access to these rights overnight and it's, it's not going to come back overnight. And when you look at a case, when you look at, you know, planning and, and looking at strategic planning for litigation, you can see in these cases, right, you take on one issue, you take on maybe two issues, and you keep it really clean, you keep it really straightforward for the court, you present it in a way that you put your best argument forward so that you can get the best ruling from the court. And when you do that, then you use that opinion, and you use that to benefit the next case and the next case, right? We're talking about, we're talking about Linton, right? There are several cases where we've dealt with the question of, you know, nonviolent felons in possession, We've dealt with this issue from different perspectives, right? The case has gone up and there's opinions on this from different charges, from different um, lengths of conviction, the question of whether the you know conviction is still on the record, which we have in some cases, and then whether the conviction was expunged, which we have in some cases. It's all about having that strategic mindset and seeing you know where these issues are going to go up, how these issues are going to go up, and how they all you know play with one another. You get something like uh, Heller, for example, and then that allows you to get McDonald, which says, so Heller, right, against just the federal government, straight Second Amendment question. Then you get McDonald, which is, hey, all we're asking for is Heller, but incorporated against the states. Really simple, very clean question. It's a lot harder if you file McDonald first and have to win on both the Second Amendment issue and the question that is it incorporated against the state. And so that's the easiest way to see kind of the, the the approach and how these cases push up and how these cases flow through is it's about winning issues and using those to benefit your other cases and your other claims. Yeah. And obviously, you know, with the cargo case, if we get a win here, um, that is going to be beneficial as we're challenging, you know, the uh, unfinished frames and receivers, the uh, pistol brace, the who's engaged in the business, whatever other rules the ATF comes up with going forward. How concerned are you, uh, Cody, that if we get a bad decision in Cargill, that this just opens the floodgates for the ATF to 
legislate on its own um, in in ways that are even more extreme than what we've seen to date? It would very much depend. I mean, it would certainly hearten the agency, right? It would certainly hearten the gun control uh, movement if they were to to get a victory here. But it would really also depend on what the opinion is. APA cases are really unique, right? They're not as it's not the same structure as like our normal civil litigation or normal constitutional uh, litigation because it's limited to the rule uh, and the record behind the rule, which is everything that the agency considered or reviewed when writing and promulgating that final rule. And so they're very limited to the facts of the case and the the, the rule uh, before the court. So if the court did rule uh, against Cargill, and it would really depend on what the structure of that was and what parts of the, the rule and the record they pointed to. Now, I would say that something, you know, like with, with our frame and receiver case, the Vanderstock case, which is, uh, you know, the federal government has petitioned for cert on that case and is currently mm -hmm. in that petition for cert. That one is just an egregious expansion of the language in the statute. Now, I would argue that Cargill is the same, uh, but we're talking about two different statutes. We're talking about, you know, two different uh, different terms that are being interpreted, uh, air quotes, interpreted uh, by the agency, different definitions that are being structured. So it's entirely possible that even a, a negative decision, a decision in favor of the ETF in the Cargill case wouldn't uh, broadly negatively impact other litigation, but it would be very dependent on what the opinion said. All right. Well, hopefully that is a uh, question that is mooted several months from now when we get the uh, opinion in Cargill versus or Garland versus Cargill. Uh, you know, I would ask you uh, what other cases you're working on, but we heard for like another two or three hours because I know that the FPC and FPC Action Foundation, you guys are, are constantly working on cases around the country. Um, but is there any decision that you've got kind of off in your peripheral vision right now that you're waiting to, to see come down? Yeah, you know, we've talked about the Supreme Court in recent years uh, and their, you know, reticence to take Second Amendment cases. Of course, before we had Bruin, we had the you know city of New York case that got mooted out by New, well, allegedly mooted out by New York changing its law, New York City changing its law and then New York State changing its law. Um, but now we've got a couple tangential Second Amendment questions that are pending before the court. So don't forget, we're, you know, we had Rahimi argued earlier this year. Um, we've got the, uh, you know, Cargill case that's now been argued. So both of those opinions are going to come out sometime this term, probably, uh, if I'm a betting man, they're coming out at the end of the term this yeah. year, as most uh, of the more controversial opinions do. But what can be lost in that is don't forget all of the petitions for cert that are pending and being held while those two cases are decided. So there's the range case, which is another prohibited person, which is an offensive uh, prohibition because range, the, the facts that range presented to the court just show how offensive those prohibitions are. Um, you know, we've got those those petitions for cert that we talked about last time, right? In, in Bianchi and in Harrell, um, there's a lot that is sitting and kind of waiting to see what the court does on Rahimi and on and Cargill. And once those two are decided, we'll probably also get a series of potentially summary dispositions, potentially even a grant maybe for next term if they want to deal with the issue again. So that was, that's the other thing that we're watching out for. Of course, you know, we've talked about our cert petitions that are up before the court. We've talked about the, um, you know, the pistol brace case, the prayer receiver case. Those are both, you know, obviously attracting a lot of attention still. 
Um, but the other thing I would watch for is what happens with all those petitions for cert once these cases before the Supreme Court are decided. All right. Well, listen, as always, man, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. I love getting your perspective. And uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't feeling bad about uh, yesterday's oral arguments, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better than I did when we sat down to talk. So, uh, Cody, thanks, as always, for all your work, all your efforts on behalf of gun owners around the country. Folks, want more information about uh, FPC or the FPC Action Foundation? How do they get it? So, yeah, they can go to firearmspolicy.org, uh, see what we're working on, see the cases. Uh, and then, of course, at Gun Policy on Twitter uh, or on X and on every other social media for Firearms Policy Coalition. And then at FPC Action uh, for FPC Action Foundation. Fantastic. Cody J. Wadooski with Firearms Policy Coalition Action Foundation. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, look forward to doing this again very soon. Thanks, Cam. Looking forward to it. Now, my thanks to Cody for joining us on the program. Looking forward to having him back again very soon. Always uh, love going over these cases with Cody. Uh, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report, which is a doozy. Um, comes to us from Corpus Christi, Texas. Here is the headline. Man arrested on manslaughter charge and fetal death, currently on probation, and not for jaywalking either. So police received a call about a shooting on Monday at an apartment complex in Corpus Christi, Texas. When they got there, they found a 22-year-old woman who was pregnant who had been shot in the leg. She was taken to the hospital with serious injuries. Um, her 19-year-old husband was in the apartment. And at uh, some point, while the police were investigating, it was reported that the unborn child was pronounced deceased at the hospital. Now, 19-year-old Noah Acuna has been charged with manslaughter. Aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, family violence, as well as being arrested on an outstanding warrant. As KRS-TV in Corpus Christi reports, that outstanding warrant stems from a motion to revoke that was filed back in September, alleging that Acuna was not complying with the terms of probation after he previously pled guilty to a family violence charge last January. So this is not his first time that he has been accused of assaulting a family member. According to a probable cause statement filed by the Corpus Christi Police Department, on March 7th of 2022, so almost two years ago, Acuna was accused of choking his girlfriend and refusing to allow her to leave a room. He ended up pleading guilty to family violence by impeding breath and then received a deferred sentence. So no jail time, three years probation. Now, among the terms of the probation Set down by a judge, he was supposed to complete several programs, was allowed to continue to have contact with the victim. But there was a report alleging violations of that probation filed back in September, claiming that Acuna failed to report to the Community Supervision Corrections Department officer over the course of three months, failed to report a change of residence, failed to pay court-ordered fees, and failed to complete other conditions, including completion of a substance abuse drug counseling program, a batterer's intervention program, as well as attending Narcotics Anonymous meetings. So, in other words, none of the things that Acuna was supposed to do in order to stay on probation were done, or at least very few of the conditions of his probation were actually followed. And again, back in September, the courts became aware of this. But according to KRS-TV, to date, quote, no hearing has been held on that motion to revoke his probation. It's been, what, almost six months now since that motion was filed. No court hearing scheduled. No opportunity to tell young Mr. Acuna, hey, since you're not taking probation seriously, guess what? Your deferred sentence is no longer deferred. You're going to prison. 
if that had happened, if that had happened, it is possible, at least, that Mr. Acuna would have been behind bars on Monday, would not have been in a position to allegedly shoot his now wife, which led to the death of his unborn child. And um, we wouldn't be talking about Mr. Acuna today. But because the criminal justice system's gears grind awfully slowly, justice was not done here. And Mr. Acuna is facing far more serious charges now than he was two years ago when he got that deferred sentence that he, uh, again, completely ignored, allegedly, according to prosecutors. Now, today's Armed Citizen story uh, from Tennessee, uh, and I will say this is Still in the early stages of the investigation, police have not officially ruled this to be a justified shooting. The reason why I'm including this in today's Armed Citizen story is just based on uh, the description given by authorities about what happened. If that description holds up, then I suspect this will be a ruled uh, ruled a justified shooting. It involves a rideshare driver in Nashville, Tennessee, who was taking a fare back home when he called 911 just before 10 o'clock Monday night, and said, I'm being kidnapped by this guy in my car. He called back again about 15 minutes later, begging for help, saying that he, again, was being kidnapped by his passenger. In the second call, he said that he had shot the passenger who allegedly robbed and kidnapped him. Upon arrival, officers found a uh, man named Karen Gardner on the ground, unresponsive due to multiple gunshot wounds. He was pronounced dead at the scene. They did find a loaded pistol on the sidewalk near him. Officers say they also found the driver's pistol in the driver's seat of his Chevy Tahoe. Police say that he is fully cooperative, uh, gave a detailed statement to homicide detectives, driver telling the detectives that while he was giving Gardner a ride to a public housing area, Gardner became agitated, then pulled a gun and began making threats. Detectives did not arrest the driver at the scene. They released him after he gave a statement. Uh, the Metro Police Department says the investigation is continuing and findings will be staffed with the district attorney's office at the conclusion. Again, based on the information that has been released to date, this sounds like a pretty clear case of self-defense, but we will keep our eyes open and see if any more details become available in the days to come. Finally today, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, a, a member of our U.S. military running into a burning building to save the lives of others. Uh, Zara Diamond is with the 3rd Infantry Division. She's in uh, Fort Carson, Colorado, for a defensive cyber operations symposium when uh, she noticed smoke and saw people frantically leaving a building next door to where she was uh, sitting in a rental car. She said, I got out of my vehicle and I ran over to the railing. She said she uh, ended up yelling. Uh, at the uh, folks who were running out of the building. Hey, is that on fire? And they responded, yeah. So she said, I climbed over the railing and I jumped onto a garbage can and then onto the ground running towards the building. Um, She says, as I'm banging on the doors, I find a man stumbling his way through the hallway. Grabbed him by the arm, guided him towards the door to get him outside. The Army reports she continued to help more people out of the building, actually exiting and entering back in multiple times, risking her own life. Um, In an interview with the Army, she said despite having five children of her own, she could not shake the thought that the people inside that burning building also had families waiting for them at home. She said for those people who are in there, they have families too. Something as simple as going in there to get them out can save a whole life and a whole family from grief. 
According to the Army, the uh, fire started in a crawl space in the building, eventually consumed the entire structure. But again, thankfully, there were no injuries reported, uh, at least in part because of the quick thinking and the fast actions of Warren Officer Zara Diamond, again with the uh, 3rd Infantry Division, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to save the lives of others. We thank you for your very, very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I'm sad that this is the last Cam and Company of the week, but we'll be back on Monday with even more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. And don't forget to check out BearingArms.com in the meantime, because we're keeping you up to date on court cases, legislation, yes, the culture war, everything we talked about with Cody, uh, covering these uh, issues each and every day at BearingArms.com. If you like what you see, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member to help us keep doing the independent pro-Second Amendment journalism that we're engaged in on a daily basis. All you have to do, go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, and you can get a uh, substantial or significant and significant. We'll use both words, substantial and significant savings on your VIP or VIP membership. Not only will you get that warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you're supporting the work that we're doing at Bearing Arms, but you're going to get exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. News stories and analysis that matter, just like your support. So thank you again. Really do appreciate it. Looking forward to being back with you again on Monday. Check out the website in the meantime. Have a great weekend. Until then, be well, be safe, and yes, be free.